Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, it's an exciting time in the calendar. I want to talk about a bunch of things. I want to, ma ma mainly two things. One is I want to just continue on this theme of the, this idea. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We took, called that talk, Learning How to Receive. I definitely recommend going back and, and listening to that. I want to talk a, bit, a little bit more about, about that because really what these talks are, and, and I've referred to these talks many times as, as couples therapy between us and God. You know, because that's, that's really essentially what all of this is all about. I mean, essentially, you know, just trying to get that, that most critical relationship in the world, which is just you and your own creator down. If, if we can get that down, then basically everything else improves. Our lives improve, our families improve, our friends improve, the, the world improves, every, everything gets better. But it really starts with making sure that, that you're in a good place in terms of your relationship with God. And, and the key word there is relationship. And, and like m my dad, who is a, a therapist and, uh, or a psychologist for practice for 50 years, you know, he, he said, I, I've shared with you before, the most simple m metaphor, but, but so good, which is that he said relationships are like houseplants. If you don't order them, they die. <laughs> That's it. I mean, you know, I mean, that is just that is as Dick and Jane as it's going to get. You know what I mean? It's like that is like really simple, but but that's that's what it is, and it's 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 very true in terms of us and God. In other words, it's this ongoing relationship, and to the extent that we water it and we invest effort or thought, often thought into it, and because basically, can you imagine you're you're flying? Human beings are very frail. Imagine you want to fly a paper airplane through a tornado and get it and get it to where you had directed it. Well, how do you account for all the winds? Right? So we we are so to speak that paper airplane and there are very strong winds around us all the time. So so course corrections have to be done on a regular basis, on a regular constant basis really. And and that's what I mean in terms of that's a, just another way of phrasing um, investing and thinking about our relationship with God, you know, like, and, and, and so after you get down to the basics, like, okay, I'm not murdering, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not pillaging and ransacking, like, once you get down to the basics, then really everything else becomes more or less a series of subtleties. So, so a lot of these points are, are more subtle points, but that's because that, that actually becomes sort of like the landscape at that point, but but no less important, no less important. You know, I, I always remember the story. I there was a, um, a a terrorist attack or an attempted terrorist attack many years ago in Israel, and they were coming uh, on a, a holiday in Israel where a lot of people have the day off and go to the beach, and these um, these terrorists in in these um, you know rubber life raft boats. We're, we're heading toward the beach, and it would have been, God forbid, a terrible, terrible massacre. And they were off for like one or two degrees. And because they were off one or two degrees, you know, their boat shifted and landed something like, I don't know, a hundred yards further in the other direction, which was right at a Israeli military base. So, you know, one or two degrees doesn't seem like much in the present, but when you sort of like project where that line goes when it's one or two degrees off, it ends up in a very different place down the road. 
So, so that's why these little sort of like um, what might sound like nuances are, or I would describe them as small things that are big things. Okay. So, with that in mind, let's 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 talk about that, and then I want to talk about more about this. Just the idea of, and this is really a very big topic, but just to try to scratch the surface of it, anyway, this idea of eliminating doubt. Like, how do, you, how do we eliminate doubt? So, so and, and ultimately, these things go hand in hand. But, but let me just start with this more sort of relationship-based idea. Just tell you a personal story. And I tell you these type of personal stories for the reason that um, I feel like, you know, all this stuff has to be real. Like, we have to talk to each other from a real place. And to the extent that I feel like if I'm going through it, then probably someone else is going through it also. I mean, I think that's, that's the premise anyway. And so it, it often turns out to be the case. So, so, so with that in mind, I'll tell you a personal story. So, so I, it was porn, and the, the minion I normally go to wasn't meeting because, for whatever reason, because there's, you know, you're reading the Megillah, there's a special reading, everything like that. So, so they were, they were going to have it... Uh, they were saying, well, this, this minion that you normally go to meets, there, it will meet at the same time, but it's at a different shul. So, but if you want to keep to your schedule, you can go there, and then there, there will still be the same one. Okay. And many people where I normally go were going to go there, so I thought, okay, I'll go there too. It's a place I don't go. I don't think I've ever been there for a regular morning service ever. Okay. And so, and it's a, it's a large place. I get there, it's a big room full of people and everything like that, and they get up to the Torah reading, and I'm thinking, you know, poor, it's such a holy day, right? It's like Yom Kippur, you know? So I'm like, ah, ah it would have been nice to, got, to have gotten an aliyah, you know? But I thought, well, you know, what are you going to do? It's, they don't know you here. It's a big room full of people. Plus, I'm a levy. So even if they were offered you, a, 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 say, shlishi, another aliyah, you, you can't take it because you're a levy. It's a very specific thing. So, so anyway, we're, they're, they're starting to read the Torah already, and I'm like, okay, it's not happening. Because normally speaking, most places, they, they say, okay, you're first, you're second, you're third, whatever it is, so that it's organized, and then the people know that to go up, and then it runs more smoothly. They don't usually wait after the Aliyah to, to hand it to someone else. Okay, so anyway, they finish the first Aliyah, and I'm, I'm okay, I'm fine. You know, it would have been nice, but that's what it is. And then someone comes up to me and says, are you a lady? And which means, I'm pretty. That tra- let me translate. I'm pretty sure you're a lady. You're a lady, right? So, <laughs> so, um, so I was like, yeah, and 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 I got the Aliyah. and then, so so I was very happy about that. So then, you know, just as another point, and then we'll get to the real point of this whole story. Is it one more point? We've discussed it before. It says in the Gemara that. Um, you know, if a verse, if a pasuk starts with the word vahaya, that's a positive thing. If it starts with vayihi, then not so positive, right? So, so I get up there, and you know, they point to the first word of your aliyah, you know, and it's vahaya. I'm like, oh, so good. This is so good. Okay. <laughs> so, a couple of days later, Shabbos, right? I'm, I'm I'm lying in bed, and I'm kind of just thinking about this, you know. And by the way, I just tell you, I, I heard from Rabbi Green many years ago that you're not supposed to have conversations with yourself in bed in the morning. <laughs> like it, on the first page of the Shulchan Aruch, like the Jewish code of law, it says you're supposed to rise out of bed in the morning like a lion, Amen. right? 
Like, so, you know, if you begin a conversation with yourself in bed, like, one thing you can tell yourself is, you know, let me, uh, it's all good, let's just continue the conversation in the shower or over coffee, whatever it is, you know? I'm not cutting you off, I got plenty of time. Let's just not do it in bed, right? So, so it's just good to get out of bed in the morning, okay? I don't know if you've ever heard this expression, it's a Yiddish expression, but people talk about fetching the bed, where you're just like, you're just rolling around in bed for an extended period of time, even though you're awake, instead of getting out. So don't fetch the bed, rise like a lion, it's not easy to do, but if you can do it, anyway. So um, I'm not taking, I'm not taking this advice. I'm lying in bed and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, you know, you know, it's nice. I got a Nalia and Purim. The first word was Ahaya. It's so good. And thinking, you know, what, what? Maybe that's maybe that's a sign something good is going to happen. Like, you know, we all have our wish lists, right? Maybe it's a sign something positive is going to happen. And then, now here's the reason why I'm telling you the whole story, okay? And then I thought to myself, wait a second. Why think about it like that? In other words, how about just the fact that something nice happened? Just, God just... God just expressed on, on some level, at that moment, maybe, if I can say such a thing, that he was happy with you. Mm. And, and maybe that, 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 should be, that, that, that should be how I'm receiving this. So, so just, okay, so that's the point, but I, I don't feel as though I fully communicated what the, what the real point is yet. So, so let me keep on going. So imagine there's... Um, Imagine there's two people, and, and one person gives the other a bouquet of flowers. And the other person takes the flowers and goes, ah, this means he's going to take me out for dinner. <laughs> it's like, what happened to the flowers? <laughs> or someone gives you some flowers, and you think, ah, he's going to give me a ring. <laughs> but what happened to the flowers? Like, how about just the fact that you received the flowers? And so I think that a lot of times, especially with a more sort of spiritual kind of like outlook on life, we kind of fall into holy fortune telling, if you will. (laughs) And the fortune telling is that, you know, this happens, it's a sign that maybe that's going to happen. So... Someone brought up very, very appropriately, and I thought this was an excellent point, which is that we have a concept of an esratzon, which means a time of favor. And when there's an esratzon, and and you sense that, you know, like the the gates are open, at that moment you have to daven for everything. So, So is there a contradiction between this idea that, oh, you got the aliyah, or oh, you got the flowers, whatever that means in your life at that moment, and, and davening for everything. So, so you have to daven for everything at that moment. And, and there is no contradiction at all. But then after you daven for everything, go back and smell the flowers. In other words, go back and return to just the moment that, hey, you know, uh, something special just happened. And, 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 and that's, that's, that's the entirety of it. Maybe something more happens. I don't know. But, but how about just the fact that Hashem expressed a moment of closeness in, in, in our lives together. And how beautiful is that? And so, 
I heard Rabbi Shlomo say many times that, that really life is about these moments. Life is about a series of moments. And, and, and we just... Um, so I'm just sort of... I'm, I'm just putting that out there because it's like... You know, I think John Lennon, the Havdil, to quote him, you know, I think, I'm maybe paraphrasing, but he said that, you know, life is what, life is what goes on while you're making other plans. <laughs> right? So if you're, if you're having this life moment, right, and you're just making other plans, this means this and this means that, you've kind of missed the life moment, right? So, so we, we all have needs, and, and, and God should bless us that all of our needs should be fulfilled for the good, and our, our needs are real, and, and I'm not diminishing the importance or the urgency of our needs. But if we only see our relationship with God through the perspective of our pressing need of the moment, then I think that we, we, we tend, we're going we're gonna to really mess up our relationship with God. And, and so, I, you know, I've got a thing that I do every once in a while, but it's relevant, so I'm going to do it now, which is that to talk about the, a whole history of a relationship, dysfunctional relationship with God, going from great to horrible in like 15 seconds. You ready? So it, goes, so it goes like this. Oh God, you're so great. You can do absolutely anything. I love you so much. Like nothing would exist without you. Oh God, you know, I have a need and I know you're the only one who I can go to for this need because you control absolutely everything. Please God, I want this thing. Please God, I've been praying for this thing. Aren't you listening to me? God, why do you hate me? Why do you hate me so much? Okay, and then that's the end. <laughs> so what, what happened? What went wrong? What, what went wrong was that the person narrowed the entire relationship to this particular need, or maybe a couple of needs, whatever it is, and the entire relationship was basically subject to, to, that, to answering that particular thing. And so what happens is, is that when we do that, you know, I was sharing this thought with someone on Shabbos, and they were saying back to me something so beautiful. They were saying that they're, they're, they are in a place of emotional pain. They're in pain. And yet, at the time that they were expressing that they were in pain, and we were talking about these things that I'm discussing with you now, they said, but here I am eating yogurt with fresh pomegranate seeds. <laughs> and I know this is coming from God. I know this is coming from God. So, so the thing is, is that let's try to be, I'll say it in a fancy way, less binary, which means either everything's so good or everything's so terrible. How about the fact that God's love and chesed can also exist amidst things that we're, we're also experiencing pain in our lives or we're, we're also experiencing need in our lives? Because once we close ourselves off to all the good that's also happening, then that's, it's just a recipe for essentially a relationship crashing or imploding. And I, I think that these are the type of course corrections that I'm talking about in the beginning that we have to maintain, where we allow you know, all of this positivity to enter and not think that it's all white and black. Either you're answering this prayer or you're not answering this prayer or whatever it is. Because here, here's the crazy thing. 
we, life, we're, we are seeing like that beautiful example that Rabbi Shlomo gave one time, that life is like you're looking through a peephole, and through the peephole you see someone raising a knife over someone else. And you think, a murder is about to take place. And what's the reality? It's an operating table, and someone's life is about to be saved. So we're seeing the tiniest piece of reality, the tiniest piece. And so we don't know. And, and we believe Judaism believes in reincarnation. So it could be that this, this, this pain, this trauma, whatever it is that we're going through in our life, is actually correcting a previous lifetime that we're in this world, in the process of receiving the fixing for the very thing that we need the most, while we're shaking our fist at God, why are you doing this to me, while we're getting the thing that we need the most, and that we ourselves want the most. So it's... It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's all that, it's all that, it's all that. So, okay. So what's the, what's the take-home here? The take-home is to, again, to be able to receive. To, to be able to receive the moment without going, oh, this means that. And you're already running with the football before you've caught it. You know, you see that a lot in football games. People actually start running with the football because they're so sure that they've caught it, but they haven't. And then nothing happens. It's just incomplete. So, okay. So now let's, let's keep on going. I want to I talk about, and, and it's related, but it's, it's, it's now building on Purim and, and this idea of eliminating doubt. See, Purim, in a, in a sentence, what's, what's Purim all about? Purim's all about that God is there even when you thought he wasn't. So that's, that's deep. That's deep. Or, or to put it another way, God, God is never not there. Right? Which is, which is in a way even deeper than saying God is always there. Okay? God is never not there. That, that's Purim. And everybody knows the enemy of Purim is Haman, who comes from the tribe of the nation of Amalek. And Amalek is, is, as you all know, the, the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word suffake, which means doubt. So on Purim, we're getting rid of Haman. We're getting rid of Amalek. So on Purim, when you realize that God is there, even when you thought he wasn't there, that is the elimination of doubt. Now listen to this. I heard this unbelievable. I have to thank my friend Chaim for this, who showed me a B'nai Yisachar, an unbelievable B'nai Yisachar. You ready for this? This is amazing. Why, the Vinaya Saskar asks a question. Why is it that we're, we're, we're not saying uh, a, uh, a brocha on Pesach by burning the chametz? Okay? So, that, that feels like that could, uh, that, that deserves a brocha. So he says, do you know, the B'nai Yisachar answers, because the beginning of that mitzvah, of burning the chametz, getting rid of it, is actually begins on Purim. And that every day from Purim to Pesach, or maybe to Shavuos, it's like spheres HaOmer were being lifted up every single day. Because when you get rid of the doubt, right, because, because that's, 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 there's a, Purim is a big cleaning out of your of your of your soul, of your heart, of your mind, of the chametz of of doubt. 
Now I want to talk about doubt in a, in a, in a, in a deeper way, okay? You see, there's doubt and there's disbelief. And I want to suggest that these are two different things, but we're going to have to, we're going to, we're going to have to get to that. Basically, what I want to suggest is, is that doubt just is something that's a creation and just exists in the world. But just because doubt exists, it doesn't mean that you have disbelief. Okay, I'm going to explain that idea better um, as we go forward, Godwin. So right after Purim, Purim went right into Shabbos because we had Purim, then we had Shushan Purim, which is an even deeper form of Purim. By the way, they say, um, I'm going to try to get this thought across to you. This is from the Malbum. I, I don't know if I can say it 100% accurately, but you'll get the general idea of it. He was saying that basically Shushan Purim, which is, was, was, was when they killed the Amalekites in the, in the walled cities, okay, that Shushan Purim was an even bigger miracle than Purim was. Why? Because basically the Jews only had permission on a certain day which was the fourth, which was, well, remember, basically the battles happened on the 13th and the 14th, and we celebrated on the 14th and the 15th. So, so the main Purim outside the walled cities that we all celebrate, which is on the 14th, that was a celebration for what happened on the 13th. Okay? So the Jews only had permission to fight against and kill the Amalekites who were trying to kill them on the 13th, not on the 12th or, or later, right? It was just on that one day. And then, Okay, but but what about the Jews in the walled cities? They only had permission to fight against the Amalekites, who again wanted to kill them, on the 14th. Okay, and then and then they celebrated on the 15th. Okay, so here's the point. The point is is that on the 13th, it was clear that the Jews were waging war against the Amalekites. So the Amalekites in the walled cities knew that this attack was going to happen the next day against them. And so the natural process would have been, if they feel like they are in danger of being attacked the next day, that they should go and attack the Jews who had no right to defend themselves. So all the Jews were sitting ducks, and the fact that the Amalekites were about to be attacked and therefore can attack first, that information was known to them, and still nothing happened. Which means that that's an even greater miracle that the attackers who were, you know, really the most, the, the most, we say that, that the Nazis are the spiritual inheritors of the Amalekites, the most vicious strain of humanity, basically, knowing it was about to be attacked, and knowing that their attackers, potential attackers, were defenseless at that moment, just hung out. <laughs> they didn't do anything. Right? So, and then... And then there was a great victory the next day over them. So, again, just to appreciate, because a lot of times I think that's just a, a good historic, good, good Jewish literacy moment, that is, because a lot of us who celebrate Purim on the 14th don't really appreciate the greatness of Purim on the 15th, okay? So, but let's look at it a different way. I heard someone say this Purim, and I thought it was like a really interesting point. They said, ah, how could it be that Purim is only one day? Like Purim has to, if you really want to try to absorb Purim, it's got to be at least two days, you know, because especially outside of Israel, all of our holidays are 
two days or more, right? Like we, we get to absorb them a little bit more. And I was thinking, wow, Purim is two days. But what happens is Purim only gets deeper because now we're going into, if the whole idea of Purim is that God exists and is very actively present amidst concealment, then the second day of Purim, Shushan Purim, is even more concealed, right? It's, it's taking place in a walled city. But, but that is even more active, even in this greater concealed place, as we've been discussing. So you see, like, it's worlds within worlds that, however, the, most, the more you can imagine a place without God, the more you can imagine how God is still even there. Okay, so that's the transition from the 14th to the 15th. All right, so that was this year, and then came Shabbos. So, so I'm just basically telling you how there's this continuum into Shabbos where Shabbos continues to discuss this as a theme of eliminating doubt. All right, and we've got one of the great, great um, uh, events of Tanakh described, the great showdown between Eliyahu the prophet and the prophets of Baal, which was like a very popular uh, form of Avodah Zorah, idol worship, that was unfortunately also very popular among some Jews of the day as well. Okay? So basically, what's happening is you have Ahav, or in English, Ahab, right? Uh, who's married to, in English, Jezebel, right? <laughs> like, this is like really one of the most villainous couples in, in like history, you know? Ahab and Jezebel. So, by the way, Jezebel, right? She gets eaten by dogs. She gets killed by dogs, but they leave her hands alone. Like, her hands don't get eaten. And the and the the sages ask, why why were her hands spared? Listen to this. It said because she used to clap at weddings. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that something? You know, you think like the every everything counts. <laughs> everything counts. I mean, this is really a wicked person, and she would murder prophets. That was like one of her things, murdering prophets. And Ovadia, Ovadia was really, you know, one of our, our greatest prophets and, and holy personalities. So Ovadia was hiding prophets at this time to keep them alive because they were all going to get wiped out. So he was able to hide 100 prophets, 50 in one cave, 50 in another cave. And then, you know, and, and it's not raining. There's this tremendous drought because Eliyahu basically shut off the heavens with his prayers. And it's like bad and it's like it's really taxing and Ahab Ahab is like angry and he's searching every country to find Eliyahu okay because he is the enemy of the Jewish people he is the enemy of the nation of Israel God forbid but that's how he viewed it and uh, Ovadia is kind of walking around he's taking care of the prophets in their, their various caves and all of a sudden he sees Eliyahu. Eliyahu has been AWOL. He's been missing for like a long time. And all of a sudden he's like, is it you? Is it really you? And Eliyahu says to him, go and tell Ahab I'm here. And he says, you want me to do that? <laughs> I don't think, why do you want to kill me? He says, because when I deliver him the news, he's going to say, where is he? And then you're not going to be able to be found like you haven't been found 
for all this search of all these countries, and then when I can't produce you, he's going to kill me. Now you know I've only devoted my life to to trying to serve God, and now you're putting a death sentence on me by te- making me tell Achav that 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 you send regards or whatever it is, or that you're here. And so Eliyahu says, No, 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 no. I'm sticking around. Don't worry about it. So it's all good. It's all good. So, so Eliyahu goes to the king, and you know the king looks at him, and it's like, you know, it's like one of these Seinfeld Newman moments. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, where they kind of just look at each other. You know, and. Eliyahu basically says, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to, we're going to make this big, once and for all, kind of like clarification. Removal of doubt. That's, that's my phrase. It doesn't say it here. But this was like a big historic removal of doubt moment. And he says, everyone gather. All the prophets of the Baal gather, and you put your sacrifice together. And all the Jews gather, and you'll see we're going to put our sacrifice together, and we're going to see who God, the most supreme power, who's, who he sends down fire, to which sacrifice is he going to accept. And it's going to be clear. There's going to be proof to who actually is God right in front of all of our eyes. It's an amazing historical moment. Amazing historical moment. Now, what happens is, is that the prophets of Baal they, they had a statue of this Baal, and they hid a guy inside. And they were going to have this guy light a fire so that it would be seen before all of the people gathered that his sacrifice, that the Baal sacrifice was, was taken by God. Right? Which would have been this disaster. <laughs> like this utter disaster. And so what did God do? The Medrash explains that God sent a scorpion into, inside this idol and stung this guy and the guy fell dead inside the thing. And so he wasn't able to do it. Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing thing. But even more amazing than that is the words of Eliyahu himself. He's addressing all of the Jews' presence. This was, this was a congregation of Jews that were there. Okay, And he said to them, pick a side. Either go with the idol worshippers or come with the Jews. Don't straddle the fence. And this is very interesting. Pick a side. In other words, again, this is getting to this place of removal of doubt. It's either true or it's not true. Pick a side. It's very strong, these words. It's very, very, very strong. And um, and so what happens is the you know the Baal people are like they're praying and they're beseeching the the Baal and everything like that that you know his fire should come down and then these are just some of my favorite words in all of Tanakh it says that at noontime because this has been going on for a while they're not getting any success at all I'm going to read it to you it says and this is a uh, yeah, if you want to see it inside, it's, I guess, from Malachim Aleph. So that's uh, Kings, the first book of Kings, uh, 18, chapter 18, I guess, verse 27. 
So it says that by, by noontime, so this is kind of like deep into the process, it says, Eliyahu ridiculed them. And he says, cry out in a loud voice, for he is a god. In other words, he's mocking them. He says, perhaps he's conversing. Like, maybe he's in the middle of a conversation, or pursuing enemies, or he's in the bathroom. That's why, that's why he's not answering your prayer. He's like reading a magazine or something. Perhaps he's asleep and he will awaken. Right? So, so in other words, Eliyahu just is like totally mocking them and uh, or, or mocking that, you know, it's interestingly, it says you're not supposed to mock an idol worshiper because a lot of, a lot of people who do, are, are very sincere. In other words, they, this is what they've been taught and everything like that. But you are allowed to mock idol worship. A very important distinction. The Talmud makes that. Because essentially we have to have love and compassion for each other. And it's not about expressing some form of superiority or, God forbid, something like that. Because basically we're all God's children. Right? But idol worship, a, a, a flawed, mistaken, erroneous, or even ideology, that itself is, is, is subject to ridicule. But not, not, not the idol worshiper himself, because he might be coming from a good place, okay? So then he turns to, he turns to um, the Jewish people's sacrifice, and everybody knows that you can't light wood that's wet. So he says, okay, now it's our turn. You guys, it's clear, it's not happening for you. He says, okay, there's the wood and there's the sacrifice. He says, take water and pour it all over the wood. And they pour water all over the wood. And he goes, now do it again. And they go and they pour water all over the wood. And he goes, now do it again. And it's so much, it's like the whole area is like submerged in water. And then a fire comes down and takes the entire thing. Right? And everyone, all the Jews fall on their faces and they say, Hashem hu Elohim, Hashem hu Elohim, which we say on Yom Kippur. Right? All of Yom Kippur are building to those moments and it's referencing what, what, what happened at the end of this story. And by the way, if you look in the Mariv prayer, that right before Shemona Esrei, we, we say that every day. So we're reliving, we're going back every, every night. You know, night stands for a time of um, disbelief, lack of clarity. That's what night is. So every night we say we we reenact. We're at that place again, and we reenact, falling on our faces, saying Hashem Hu Elokim, Hashem Hu Elokim, Hashem is God, right? Um, so again, we're going from Purim right into this Haftorah, which is a Purim again. Is God is even there in a when 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 He seems most concealed, He's there. Purim is about getting rid of Amalek, which is Suffolk, eliminating doubt. Suffolk is doubt. And then we go into this great contest that Eliyahu did on behalf of all generations to show, just to prove objectively in front of our eyes that there is no other power than God. Okay? Okay. Now let's go deeper. Let's go deeper because we're talking about us in the here and now. There is such a thing as doubt. And doubt is actually a creation of God. Okay? Now, where do you see doubt? If you want to actually point to, um, if you actually want to point to doubt in the world, like if you say it's a creation, that means it's a thing. So I should be able to point to it. So I think I heard this in the name of Rav Soloveitchik, um, which is, do, do you know where you see doubt in creation? A very fascinating observation. 
In this period of time, which happens every day, we talk about it mostly from Friday into Shabbos, but in this period of time called Shkia. What is Shkia? It's the period when the sun is set, but it's not nightfall. So this period, the sun is set, but it's not nightfall. So what is it? Is it day or night? It's Shkia. Yeah, but is it day or night? We don't know. Okay, I get it. But tell me, just what's the answer? Is it day or night? That's just it. We don't know. It's Shkia. It's not day. It's not night. It's a gray area. It is doubt. It's doubt. Doubt actually exists as an objective creation that's been weaved into the reality of time and space. Doubt exists, okay? But, and now we're returning back to the point that I promised you I would try to explain better. Doubt exists, but that doesn't mean that your unanswered questions are a sign of disbelief. You see, the thing is, is that everyone is always going to have as long as there's doubt in the world, that means that there's going to be unanswered questions in the world. But because you have unanswered questions, it doesn't mean that you yourself are doubting. The Yetzirah wants to come to you and tell you that all your unanswered questions are like a sign that there's something wrong and that therefore this can't be true. But that's a whole sequence of logic that's born from a Malik, that's just born from, 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 from that from the the Tzadah Kedusha, the holy side. In other words, a person has to understand that doubt exists, which means unanswered questions exist, but that's an external, that's an external reality. And then you have to understand that as you experience the unanswered questions of life, that's just part of the human condition, but that doesn't mean that you yourself disbelieve. And to be able to sort of like clarify those thoughts within yourself and say, look, I don't know, and it's okay not to know. Right? That that's, 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 that's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. See, because we get ourselves crazy when we go, I don't know, but I'm supposed to know. And if I don't know, there's a problem. And therefore, and then you go and you weave some kind of crazy trap for yourself. Right? But you can short-circuit that thing, which is like, you know something? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because there's such a thing called doubt in the world. But that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. So one of the things that I just like was amazed at about thinking, just the mechanics of this. You know, the Purim story ends with the reacceptance of the Torah. And Pesach is basically one long holiday that culminates in Shavuos. So Pesach also ends with the reacceptance of the Torah, or the acceptance of the Torah. So both holidays are ending with the acceptance of the Torah, Purim and Pesach. Now, one of the things that's one of my favorite things in the world is that if you actually look at the Megillah, when did, when did the miracle of Purim take place? Meaning to say, the whole feast where Haman was exposed as an, as an enemy and was hung, what calendar dates did Purim take place on? Pesach. Pesach. It took place on Pesach. So it's, it's crazy to think. Like, if, you don't, if, you, if you're not familiar with this idea, Purim happened on Pesach. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. Because Pesach represents total revelation. These are the open miracles of us leaving Egypt. 
Purim represents total concealment. So here's, here's, here's something just on a DNA level. What's so cool is, where did the light of Purim come from? Where did the light of Purim, which is able to light up God's presence, even the most concealed places, where did those supercharged batteries to provide so much light come from? From Pesach. <laughs> right? That, that, that Purim is supercharged with the light of revelation from Pesach. And therefore, it's able to shine even in the darkest places, right? What's interesting also is that, is that uh, you know, Pesach is the first month of the year. That happens in Nisan. And Purim is the last month of the year. You know? And it's like, if you want to think of it in a linear way, it's sort of like the light from the beginning is stretching all the way out into the darkest place to the light at the end. Or if you want to think of it in a cyclical way, you know, the light and darkness are right next to each other, but the but 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 what we call darkness is is really just filled with light. So Hashem should bless us that we should have clarity. Amen. That we should really that that we should be able to just kind of be in the moment and to you know, receive those flowers again, you know, and just just to, to, to be able to just sort of like, like everything doesn't have to be contingent on something else happening, you know? I mean, it's great if it does, and, and Hashem should bless us, that all of our prayers should be answered, really. Hashem should Amen. bless us really with Parnasatova, with Shaduch, with Kindalach, with Rafuah, with everything that we need. Mashiach, Pesamigdash, Alambayas, Simcha, everything, everything beautiful. All, all of our needs. So that why? So that we can serve God with full strength. Amen. Right? Right? Not just that because I, I, I like these things and I want these things, but I, I, I'm going to be better for them and I'm going to be able to do more with them and be a better version of myself if I can get these things. So please, God, help me be the better person that you created me to be. But, but I need these things, not, not just because I'm selfish, but, but because I want to serve you better. So anyway, all, all good things. Now for some questions and answers. Uh, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, there's a concept that I want to uh, reiterate that I think yeah. is so, so powerful. Uh, this discernment between uh, doubt and not knowing, yeah. you know, and how doubt we can destroy, we can eliminate, and not knowing is like woven into the fabric of yeah. creation. Yes. As you said, Shkia, what's so amazing, it's such a beautiful time of day. Yeah. You know, Shem could have made that any time, whatever, but You're it's like right. really right beautiful and mysterious. Yeah. So I feel like it's an invitation for us not only to embrace not knowing, but to ask more questions, to ask like deeper more penetrating questions. They get even like closer to Hashem. You know, you know you're reminding me of something, which is that you know, in the film industry, that period is known as magic hour. Yeah. And the reason why they call it magic hour is because it's the light is more or less the same light as before it is at sunrise. Mm. So in other words, you can shoot something at, say, depending on the time of the year, 6 p.m., say, and it will play on the screen as though it was shot at, say, 5 a.m., so you can shoot something at 6 p.m. It, it plays at 5 a.m. But what's, what's interesting then is that if, if, if this is the area of doubt, you see part of the area of doubt is I don't even know what time it is. <laughs> right? Do you understand? That it's sort of like it really is filled with doubt because it could be early morning or it could be, you know, almost nighttime. And, and 
Judging by the light, you don't even know. So, so again, weaved into the fabric of creation, you see that, that there, it, it, it's, there's this big question mark on this period. Yesterday, you asked a question, and it was, why did Moshe sprinkle this golden calf into the water and have the Jews drink it? Would yeah. you want to bury that someplace? Yeah. Right. And I think what you were talking about with the difference between not knowing, which has to do with Amuna, and doubt is the answer to that question. Just like in the Garden of Eden, the snake had been outside, and after the sin, uh, it became part of us. We had that doubt. We had the, all of a sudden the Yetzirah. And I think it's the same thing. It's that uncertainty and the Jewish people drinking the, the, um, the dust from the golden calf now would have the uncertainty to juggle with um, everything else that they had to do. And so you're saying he was making it worse? No, I, I was saying that, in a sense, yes. But, okay, so then yes. let me respond yes. to that. Sense, so, yes. Or let's look at it, let's flip it over and look at it in a more positive way. How about now he was um, giving us uh, a vaccination against it? Wow. Because, you know, because sometimes, you know, you the way vaccines work is you put a little bit of the malady inside of a person, just a tiny bit, and then the... the um, the, the immune system now knows how to recognize it and has a strategy to fight against it and to defeat it. So now after the golden calf, we're drinking a little bit of the ground up dust, which is digestible at this point, so we can recognize that level of wrongdoing and guard against it in the future. Um, so I understand that there's this concept of doubt in the world and yeah. Hashem created doubt. But why does there have to be a people that represent doubt? Like, why, like, we all have freedom of choice. Like, it just always bothered me that there's an Amalek and you have to destroy them, and till the end of time, there's going to be this people. And I don't know, like... Yeah, I, I know. It makes it so personal, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Why do they have to be punished? Why do they have to suffer with, mm. like, being, like, the arch enemy of good and yeah. the Jewish people? Yeah, we suffer, they suffer. Everyone, no, no one, no one... <laughs> No one gets out unscathed in that in that version. Yeah, I hear. I don't know. I don't know. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Yeah, I was wondering, in terms of just like facing with that and yeah. decision making and yes. like life choices, is there like practical ways that you can suggest like mm. of how to deal with doubt when you're facing it and making decisions? You know, I, I, once, uh, I once heard Reb Shlomo tell a story he, about someone who didn't know which shul to daven in. And I think they were like two different derechs, two different sort of like paths in, in spirituality. And he, he waited till Shabbos and he asked himself, which, where do I want to go on Shabbos? Because on Shabbos there's a truer, higher revelation of yourself that comes down. And, and I remember him saying off of that story, if you're, if you're trying to decide between two girls who to marry, he said, wait till Shabbos, think about it on Shabbos. <laughs> so maybe, maybe think about it on Shabbos. <laughs> Just quickly, yeah. I'm confused about Passover being the start of the year. 
Yeah, okay, so there's a, yeah, it, it is confusing, but, but there is actually a simple answer. Um, when, when the Jewish people left Egypt, the very first mitzvah that we got as a nation was to make a calendar. So, so to speak, time started at that moment. And so since that happened during the month of Nisan, when we order the months in terms of the first month, the second month of the year, the third month of the year, Nisan, which was that month where we got the order to make a calendar, becomes the first month of the year. So therefore, it becomes the start of the year. Now, Judaism being Judaism, it's where we are balancing many different points of views simultaneously. We have a new year of months, which would be Nisan, because it's the first month of the year. But we also, very interestingly, have a new year of years. And that's in Tishrei, and that's where Rosh Hashanah is. Which actually, and now it becomes confusing, our new year begins in the middle of the year, because it begins on the seventh month of the year. But there's a beautiful thought there, which is that you can begin again when you're in the middle. I mean, we all need that teaching more than anything else. So we have our new year in the middle of the year, because that's when we need the most strength to begin again.